like you to open your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians 10. It is, of course, Palm Sunday, and normally we would be speaking to the matter of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. But I want to stay with our Corinthian study for no other reason than it does, it does connect. And I'll talk about that as we get farther into it. Uh, we've been talking about the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the church. In the process of doing that, I think we've been finding some principles that extend beyond that immediate setting, even to our own. Just for example, last week, uh, we learned about the, the benefits of generosity, where Paul writes, he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. There's a benefit to generosity. And then, of course, the importance of simplicity, moving us toward that concept of aplotis, that singularity of focus, and how important that is. The benefit of focused living. And we're going to continue in that vein this morning. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in the first verse. And this is the New American Standard that I'm reading. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am weak when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I'm present I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, Lord. And it is such a privilege we have, Lord, to look to your word, open our hearts and minds to your word, Lord. And um, our prayer, our prayer this morning is that by your spirit, you would speak the truth that we need to hear, Lord, in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So Paul starts talking about war here. It's a relational letter. He's talking about his relationship with the church. And so when you use words like war, you're probably going to get you know, people's attention. That's going to spice things up a little bit. Um, he's speaking about the war that is part of our spiritual walk, the conflict that we're in. And I think all of us know that experientially. When you, you attempt to live out your faith, you attempt to live as a Christian, to do the right things, and immediately you find yourself uh, confronted by all sorts of things. So we know it's, it's not completely um, strange to use this kind of terminology. Uh, but there's a concern whenever we speak in Christian circles about warfare and about spirituality, where does our brain go? It goes immediately to Ephesians chapter 6, right? When we start thinking about spiritual warfare and armor and demonic hosts and those things that we wrestle with, we struggle against, and uh, that's all real. What Paul talks about in the Ephesian passage is extremely real. Yes, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly realms. That's all true and that's all real, but we shouldn't necessarily amp right up to that or go right there when we start talking about the things Paul's talking about here, because while this portion of Scripture, like the Ephesians passage, is certainly about conflict in the context of our spiritual walk, it isn't talking about quite the same thing. Some of the terminology is in common, most of it isn't. But it's actually something different. And that's what we want to do this morning first, is figure out 
what he is talking about when Paul talks about not warring according to the flesh and yet warring. Um, so we'll talk just a little bit about background and setting. I think we've got that pretty well down. And then we'll talk about Paul's terminology because his terminology is really critical in, the, in these verses. And then we'll see how that moves into our life, how it impacts us. First of all, some background. And again, we've covered this a lot. Paul is communicating with the church. He's talking about his relationship with the church. There are certain issues he's raised, like the offering for Jerusalem. But by and large, the letter's about Paul's relationship with the church. That's the core of the entire letter. And the problem, of course, is that there are some in the church that have been, well, to put it mildly, just not with the program, right? Not Paul's program, but the program for the church, building the church into the body of believers that God intended it to be, having the impact in Corinth. God wants them to have, being the church of the living God in that setting. There are some believers in the church, and they're just, they're just not moving that direction. In fact, they're opposing it. We've talked about that. We've seen that. So here we're talking about Paul coming back to his immediate response, because he is coming back to the church. He's going to visit again, and he's laying the groundwork for that visit. And he uses some really strong terminology. He talks about being courageous in his presentation of himself, being bold in his presentation of himself. Now we know from, from Acts and Corinthians and other places that Paul's physical appearance was one of infirmity. He didn't bring a, lot, a strong physical presence. He wasn't necessarily a polished speaker like others were. And people had minimized his presence, minimized his presentation of himself. And Paul's warning him, when I come back, it's not going to be that way. You're going to get the other part of Paul. You can get Paul 2.0 because of what has gone on. And he wants to warn them about that. And he says, I propose to be courageous. There's some people amongst this church that you better be ready when I get back because we're going to have some things to discuss. And so he's kind of laying that groundwork out. But then he makes this reference in the third chapter, the third verse. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war. And that's a pretty strong word, especially when you're talking about relations in the church in the body of Christ. And so I thought that was something that we needed to look at, this word. that he, Now, it isn't the normal word for war. When you want to talk about war in biblical Greek, you use the word polemos, which comes into English as polemic. By coincidence, a lot of these words we'll look at come right into English, and this is one of them. Well, Paul doesn't use that word here. He's, he's not using that word at all. Um, he's not using, again, the words that he uses over in Ephesians, where he uses words like panoplia, the armor, and and which is the struggling. That Ephesians passage is a very graphic, very physical passage. It talks about the wrestling. It talks about the, the crook of the arm that's bent as two wrestlers engage. That's the kind of terminology he uses over in Ephesians. Um, Stine, which is to stand, to hold your ground against an assault. Very, very graphic terminology in that Ephesians passage. Here, he doesn't use that word. The word that he uses here which he does not use, by the way, in Ephesians, is a word that you will immediately recognize because it comes right into English, is the word stratevo. Stratevo. And of course, it comes right into English as strategy. Strategize. Stratagem. All kinds of those sounds, kinds of words. And it, it means, just in general sense, it means to plan, to organize, or to prepare. Now, we do have to be careful about, about one, one thing. Sometimes where words do that, they just go right from the biblical Greek to English, that we just take the English and stick them back in. And that doesn't always work. You can make some mistakes out. Here it does work. You can just take that word strategize and just put it right in the text and it means, right? For we do not strategize according to the flesh, right? We have a different source for our 
strategy, right? So where does this word come from? Because we really want to understand what Paul means when he uses this word. Where does it come from? Well, it's an older word, but where it's really found, where it really kind of just you know, flourishes in the languages, is in the writings of a, of a fellow by the name of Herodotus. And if you're big into history, you'll know that name. Herodotus was considered the father of history because he's the first person to start writing history the way we write it now. You know, like, let's just not look at it from one perspective. Let's try to look at both sides and get a better balanced picture. He kind of invented that idea. So he's really, really popular. And what he wrote mostly about was the wars between Persia and Greece. That was his big thing to write about. So, of course, he would use this word a lot, right? Um, and so it's been noted by different scholars just how much emphasis Herodotus puts on this word strategies, especially as it relates, again, to the whole Persia-Greek dynamic. And just to kind of, again, put this in a little bit of perspective, that whole dynamic starts, if you know your history at all, with, with Darius, the great Persian ruler who's in the Bible, and he decides he wants to conquer Greece, so he shows up at Marathon with 30,000 soldiers and gets beat really bad, embarrassingly bad, because the Greeks show up with 10,000 and they beat 30,000 of his, and that's embarrassing. So he leaves, and he's really upset. He's really upset. Um, in fact, he was so upset, and again, this comes from Herodotus, he was so upset that when he got back to Persia, he took an oath. He said, I am never going to enjoy another meal until I've avenged myself on those lousy Greeks. And um, he was so convicted about that in his heart, he actually appointed a slave that every time he sat down for a meal, the slave would come up and go, remember the Greeks. And so um, just to motivate him. And he set about building an even bigger army. He wasn't going to make the same mistake twice. So he set out to build the biggest army the world had ever seen. But he didn't get to use it because he died. I suspect from indigestion. Um, but he dies. And so the task passes to his brother, or rather his son, Xerxes. And Xerxes just went full throttle. Xerxes built a huge army. Now, Herodotus says the army was 2.5 million. Most modern sources go, no. I don't know why, but they do. And they limit it to like 500,000. That's still a lot of people. And so Xerxes goes about assembling an army of half a million people, right? Now, that means gathering them, feeding them, housing them, equipping them, training them, organizing them, and then after you've done all that, get a half a million men from Persia to Greece. And there's water in the way. Now you've got, you know, Darius only had 30,000. You can put that many on ships and sail them over. But you got half a million, you don't have that many boats. So they had to walk all the way. And they had to build this incredible bridge, which then sank. So they had to build another bridge, which wouldn't sink. And so all of this Herodotus details. And the reason I say all that is he details it under the umbrella of this word, stratevo. That's what strategy is all about. It's a big word. covers a lot of stuff. And it's distinct. It's distinct from the actual fighting. That's what, we have to get that in our mindset, right? How many... Um, how many remember the old game Stratego? Anybody ever play that? Great old game, right? Now, if you haven't played it, just quickly, it, it looks kind of like a chess board. It's got two lakes right in the middle of it, which are part of the game. But you put your pieces on the board, and then you have that like chess. But unlike chess, the pieces don't have a pre-established location. Each player gets to arrange their pieces like they want, right? That's where the strategy comes in. 
you see. Plus, the other guy doesn't get to see what your piece is because its back is turned, unlike a chess piece that you can see, you know, from 350 degrees. It's not until they actually bump into one another that you go, oh, I didn't realize that's what that was, right? So where does the game of Stratego actually start? Long before it actually starts. The game starts when you're putting the pieces on the board because that's where the strategy starts. So, and the only reason I talk about that game is it illustrates that in strategy, there's a certain amount of being outside the actual conflict. There's planning, there's organization, there's thinking, there's strategy, as opposed to the actual conflict, because it all happens on the board. Okay, it's all, the pieces do all that. So that's, that's one way to, to kind of think about it in our mind. Um, I also had another idea um, about this, because I started to think about that, um, and I thought, you know, where am I going to go for some, like a really good list of the things involved in strategy? And I Googled it. Boy, was that a mistake. I got like a ton of stuff. And then I thought, oh, I know a guy that went to college to learn this stuff. So I called up my son. And he immediately, boom, just like Google, downloaded a bunch of stuff. But it was a little bit more, a little bit more to the point. And so I kind of went through the stuff Chris gave me um, and filtered it out a little bit. And I came up with six questions that are contained in this idea of stratevo, strategize. And, and I just offer them, just again, to kind of get an idea of the word. Our first question is, what's the job? What are we doing here? What's the objective and why are we doing it, right? Who, what, what are we trying to do here? Why are we doing it, right? Uh, secondly, who is opposing us? You want to define that. You want to define who's, who you're going to be dealing with. Uh, what are our assets and liabilities, strengths, weaknesses? What do we have going for us? What are our, our obstacles? That's why I like that. Stratego board, because it has those two lakes in the middle, right? That's part of strategy. You make the lake an asset, you make the lake an obstacle. So that factors in, too. So you, those are the first question. Then number four, um, in light of what we're trying to do, who we're fighting against, our assets, our liabilities, create a plan. There's got to be a plan. You have to craft a plan. What is the exact plan? Step five, initiate the plan. It's very important. You have to actually do it. Make that step of doing it. And then step six, evaluate and modify as necessary. After you start doing the plan, go, is this working or not? If it's not working, why? Right? So those are the six steps that, again, I kind of just distilled out, you know, what are we trying to do and why? Who's opposing us? Strengthen assets, make a plan, start the plan, and then evaluate. Okay, so what's strikingly similar about this as I was looking through this is how, sim how similar that is to other areas of life. I mean, I know some of you here are very successful in business. I would imagine that those who are successful in business pursued a business strategy, had a business plan that included the strategy. In fact, when I Googled it, that's what I got. Was 90% of it was stuff about business, right? Some of you are professionals, and you, you've invested in a lot of education to get where you are. I would imagine there was a strategy to your education. It wasn't like, well, what classes do I feel like taking this semester? No, you had a strategy. You had a plan. You followed, right? Um, I know some of us, some people here, are into fitness. You want to take care of yourselves. I bet you have a strategy. But you have a plan. You know, you don't wake up and go, what should I do today? No, today is the day I, you know, whatever, go to the gym, whatever. So we do that a lot in life. We have strategies and we, we follow them, right? And so... Um, I thought we can pretty well relate to this idea. The question is, the question is, do we strategize for our walk of faith? 
I won't, I won't ask anybody to raise your hand, but how many have a strategy for growing and developing in Christ? Growing and developing in your spiritual walk. That's a whole, whole different question. And what that really brings us is back to the issue of Paul and the Corinthian situation. Again, Paul has a job. He wants to see this church grow. He wants to see the church develop. He wants the church to be the body of Christ in the Corinthian situation. And because of things that are happening, that's not working. So he's, he's going back to his plan. He's going back to his strategy. Why is he doing it? Because Jesus told him to. We have the Great Commission. That's always the why. Make disciples. Growing in the likeness of Christ. In ourselves and in the lives of every single one we can influence in the body of Christ. Paul had a job. Paul had an enemy. And this is where uh, that passage really goes, goes differently than the Ephesian passage. In the Ephesian passage, he's talking about spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, right? The opponents Paul talked about in, in Ephesus were spiritual opponents. Here it's so different. Again, verse 2, I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. That's people. Paul's talking about people in the church. Christians, right? Look down a little bit to verse 5. We're destroying speculations, right? That's rationalization. Sometimes we find ourselves rationalizing behavior, even if it's behavior, especially if it's behavior out of sync with the Christian walk. Every high and lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That word that is, it occurs in the text, fortresses, that can apply either to a structure or can apply to a rational argument that is offered as justification for behavior. So there's things going on in people's heads that are causing them to act in ways at variance with the very kind of Christian view we talked about a few chapters back. Remember Paul talked about repenting not just of sin, but repenting of a carnal worldview? We're always so conscious of sin, and we know we need to resist sin, stop sin, move away from sin, but there's that whole issue of a carnal worldview which can come in so easily that does not necessarily look like sin. In fact, it can even mask itself, at least in part. And, and just a really, good, a really good example, this law that just got passed in Colorado, you knew I had to talk about it, not only affirming the legal right to an abortion, but actually legally defining the unborn child as having zero rights, not even part of the discussion. Well, the first part of that, affirming somebody's choice, affirming respect for people, affirming a woman's right to you know, have control over her own body, that's all admirable. That's, that's, you could even say godly, to affirm respect for someone. That's godly. I don't think of that as sin. It's not until the second part of the equation which causes us to completely disregard or disrespect another life. If you only look at the first part, you don't see sin. It looks admirable. It's only when it's connected to the second part that you realize there's a very non-biblical worldview. And I just use that example because it's so easy to see it. But there's a hundred ways we allow non-biblical views to come into our lives and we end up thinking in ways and acting in ways that are not consistent with our faith. So Paul's thinking about that. That is the obstacle he is addressing here as much as overt sin, right? Things in the head. 
He talks about assets and liabilities in verse 8. He says, even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, Paul has an authority to do what he's going to do. So Paul's addressing situations. Now, rather than continue down the list, I would really encourage you to just kind of do it on yourself this week. Take the rest of the week, go through the rest of the passage, and see how this dynamic works in what Paul is talking about. Paul laying out a strategic plan and then sharing that with the church, wanting that to be part of their chief. He wants them to strategize to be the church of Jesus Christ. Now, this is Palm Sunday, and I suggested earlier that these ideas connected what we're talking about here with Palm Sunday. Simply put, Jesus had a plan. Jesus had a strategy, and he followed it. I mean, it just didn't randomly wake up in the morning and go, you know what, I bet there's a donkey in that town over there. And if you guys go ask to borrow it, I bet you'll get it. No, he arranged that. Jesus had a plan. He knew where he, what he was here for. He came to seek and save the lost. He knew what his obstacles were. He knew who the opposition was. He had a plan, and he executed it right down to the donkey being available. In fact, we can even see where Jesus modified his plan when necessary. Mark chapter 6, Jesus is walking across the water. And the storm comes up, and the guys are in a boat, and they're freaking out. We looked at this last week from Peter's perspective. This is the same event from Mark's perspective. And it said that Jesus was planning to walk by them. That was his plan. But when he saw what kind of shape they were in, and they were crying out, he turned. So Jesus was so into planning that he had a plan from which he could change if the situation so Jesus strategized, and what we see on Palm Sunday is a culmination of his strategy. Everything about it, according to his plan. Right? But again, the larger question for us is, do we strategize? Do we strategize for spiritual growth? Do you have a strategy for your spiritual walk? Again, if you're in business, I'll bet you had a business plan. If you're in a profession, you invested a lot to get where you are, I bet you had a plan. We've got young adults here moving, you know, maybe towards success in life. I hope you're following a plan, right? But how about a plan for spiritual growth? Not just letting it happen, but making it happen to the extent it depended on us, right? First question, what's the job? Well, it's to grow in the likeness of Christ, right? Till Christ be formed in us. Why? Because Jesus told us to, right? Jesus didn't call any of us to remain in a place of stagnation. He loves us, we say, just as we are, but loves us too much to leave us as we are. He wants us to move forward, right? And we know who the opposition is, right? Second point. We know it is external things. We do live in a world controlled by the evil one. He is the prince of the power of the air, right? But we also know that there's a lot of opposition that comes from us, Pastor Joyce referred to the great theologian Spurgeon earlier on. I will refer to the great theologian Pogo. We have found the enemy and he is us. We've got more than enough spiritual opposition that starts right here and right here. We need to be aware of that. We need to minimize our liabilities. But we also have to be willing to see our strengths. I think we're, sometimes we're afraid of doing that. We're afraid of looking at ourselves and going, you know, I really do have this as a strength of character, and I can use that in my growth and development as a Christian. We need to do that just, just as readily, right? We have to make a plan. Being in the Word, being in prayer, being in fellowship, 
engaging in ministry. That is such an essential part of spiritual growth. I don't know how a person would, could possibly or conceivably grow in spiritual things without engaging in ministry in the lives of others. And I can guarantee you that when you do, you will grow at light speed. I do not know a single person that has ever stepped into teaching children Sunday school that did not walk out of the room saying, I learned way more than the kids did. It's just part of the turf, right? Ministering to others is spiritual growth. Make a plan, right? Engaging in ministry. But something else, just as an aside, that Pastor Joyce and I were talking a lot about this week. You know, we talk so much about um, reading the Word and studying the Word and being in the Word. One of the things that we've talked about a lot, just in our own time and you know, devotional time together, is hearing the Word. Just simply reading it to hear it. Not studying it, not deliberately meditating on it. We need to do those things too. But spending time reading to one another or even reading aloud. Reading aloud is an incredibly important exercise. In fact, I, again, you learn when you minister to others. Uh, I presented my Greek class with an exercise last week where you know the original text was all in capitals and no spaces, no punctuation. You got to the end of the line, you were only halfway through the word, no big deal, you stopped there, I went to the beginning of the next line, right? I showed that to my class and they're like, oh my God, you've talked? I asked them to read it, you know? Like, oh my God, I heard about this, but I can't read it. Well, as I was preparing that, I read something fascinating, I've never known this before, that the change in the church from that kind of scripture, all capitals, no punctuation, no spaces, nothing. The end of the line, you just stop where you are and go to the next line. That changed from that to what we have now when the church began to emphasize individual private reading. Because for a trained reader, someone like you might have in church or in the theater, that's where the idea came from, for a trained reader, that other style, there's a name for it, I can't remember it, where all is, that is actually easier for allowed reading because it gives the reader more flexibility. It allows the reader to import more of their own emotion and thinking and, and create a setting. We've lost that completely, right? I have noted, I have noted, just working with my classes, if I do that a lot, it does get amazingly easy, right? The point being this, I think as a, as a, as a church, we need to kind of rediscover that. That's all I'm trying to say. We need to rediscover the power of hearing the spoken word. All of that has the effect of forming Christ in us. Really good plan, right? Gauge in ministry, right? And, and then do it. That's really the important part, right? And evaluate. That's a part a lot of believers miss. We get stuck in something, and we're going to make it work, and then we're afraid if we back off from it or maybe try something different, we, we fell up short. No. It's important. I just offer you that those six steps is something I came up with. I don't think the details of the six steps are as important as just doing it, right? This, this week is a week the church is traditionally called Holy Week, the days between Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the resurrection. And we've always tried to suggest some kind of meditation or some kind of exercise for Holy Week, and I've always tried to do that as well. Uh, I think this week I would suggest this part of your preparation for resurrection, is start with the question in your own life, do you have a plan, a strategy for spiritual growth? And if you don't, that's okay. Just make one, right? 
start with the questions. Exactly what am I trying to accomplish? And why am I doing it? Should be able to answer that. Um, what are my obstacles? Who's, who opposes me in this? What are the obstacles I have to overcome? What are the assets that, that I have, right? And then start, start to put that plan into place and um, make changes as you need, but strategize for spiritual growth. It's a huge step forward for all of us. Father, I thank you that as we look to your word this morning and we see, um, as we think about, about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, Lord, we know that that was the culmination, Lord, of, of a plan of ministry that Jesus had followed, Lord. Father, we don't, we don't begin to understand exactly how that laid out in his mind. Um, maybe we'll find that out in eternity. But how Jesus laid out the plan that he followed that brought him first to Jerusalem to ride into town on the back of a donkey and all that that meant. And then, Father, finally, uh, to go to the cross and ultimately the resurrection, Lord. We know there was a plan, Father, because when Jesus died, he said, it's finished. Well, we want to be able to say the same thing. Father, a good many of us, we acknowledge this morning, and we thank you this morning, a good many of us have been very successful at strategizing our businesses and our careers and our education and our, 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 our taking care of our bodies, fathers, all kinds of things in life, Father, we've been able to successfully plan out, strategize for. We thank you for that opportunity, Lord, the gift you give us, Father. But Lord, we know all those plans have a, they have an expiration date on them. To strategize for the well-being of our soul, Lord, that's different. We know that passes beyond, Father, the end of this life. And so I pray, Lord, as we go through this week, you grant us the wisdom to start down this path. And if we're already on it, encourage us, Father, to continue. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.